Let's look to uh, Luke 18 and let's hear, let's hear God's word, uh, verses 1 through 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Thanks be to God. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? On the cover of your bulletin, you have a quote by uh, Dale Ralph Davis, a friend of mine, and I'm guessing a teacher, a former teacher of Tim's. Yeah, I thought so. And uh, you see that quote down there. I'm going to refer to it later on in the service. Uh, Dale uh, used to be the pastor, if you know. Uh, if you know Ralph Davis, uh, Dr. Davis. Uh, Ralph was pastor of Woodland Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg for many years. He recently retired. He did a, a series at Woodland, which is now in book form, on Psalm 1 through 12, and in the introduction of that book, he says something like this. Uh, why am I stopping the series? I'm doing whatever it was to do this uh, series on these 12 Psalms. And he said his father, who was a pastor, would say to Ralph uh, at, at some point, you know, so often God's people come dragging their self in to the worship service. Now, he wasn't referring to the fact that they had been to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and yet they had made a bet with the pastor they'd make it back for the service. That wasn't what was going on. He was talking about them being harassed by living in a fallen world, the, the trials of this life that God in his providence brings us all through, the, the difficulties, relational and and the, the sickness of loved ones, which we just prayed for, the dying of loved ones, the, the trials with little children, with grown children that may have turned away from the Lord, with uh, marriage problems, financial problems, unemployment, all these other things. God's people bring those things, those burdens with them when they come on the Lord's day to worship their God. And they need encouragement and relief and help. And notice why Jesus told this parable. Uh, Luke, in his divine editorial, tells us, Jesus told this parable, this story, to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. You and I are prone to lose heart. We're prone to be discouraged for different reasons. 
And it seems what Jesus is saying here, sometimes that discouragement that may come upon us for, a, for a varied reasons might come and we may have begun to pray. But now we've come to even be discouraged in our prayers. We feel like the psalmist in Psalm 13 where we say something like, Why have you forgotten me, O God? But instead of doing what the psalmist does in prayer, we're walking away from the Lord and not praying. We're, we're, we're ready to give up. And so Jesus tells the story so that we won't give up. He's urging us to go on, to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. That's not a Chris O'Brien editorial to the text. That's really the sense of the verbs in the Sermon on the Mount in that passage, to ask, to seek, to knock. It's to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking, to keep coming to the Lord, our Heavenly Father, through His Son, who died for our sins and by the help of his Holy Spirit who indwells us, bringing our petitions to him. Now, we know that prayer is more than petition. Uh, I like Acts. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's a good summary of prayer. We, we, we pray by adoring God, worship him. We pray as we confess our sins, and we've done that today in our service. We ought to give him thanks, not just in a couple weeks when we eat a big turkey, but throughout our life, uh, our worship and our individual life should be characterized by thanksgiving. And then it should be full of supplication and intercessing, praying on behalf of others as well as for ourselves. And our prayer is all botched up. It's all out of sorts if all it is is asking for the things that we need while neglecting praising God, neglecting giving Him thanks, not confessing our sins. For these very things may be uh, the, the things that keep us from God when we need to confess to Him. And yet, while at the same time that is true, that our prayers can get out of balance, God never says, but don't bring your pleas to me. As prone as we are to get things out of whack with God, even our praise and our worship of Him, how often have maybe we said, and I've heard as a pastor for some 25 years, when I, I walk uh, back to uh, the the uh, uh, the foyer or what have you, and, and somebody will say, well, I got a blessing out of the service. And that's not necessarily wrong, long as you primarily came to bless God, to give Him praise. Yes, it's a great fringe benefit to be blessed by God, but is our priority to give Him blessing, to give Him praise and glory. We can get that out of whack sometimes as God's people. But nonetheless, even if we do, we should keep on keeping on praying, seeking God's face. How does this uh, parable do that? How does Jesus, with this little simple story of a pitiful widow, and a rotten judge, help us. Well, first of all, the widow reminds us how hopeless and helpless we are. You see, the widow is a reminder of how hopeless 
and helpless we are as God's people and how we should be very conscious of that all the time and it should lead us to prayer. Think of this widow. Uh, what, what is a widow? A widow, of course, is somebody that's uh, lost their husband. We often think in later years, although it can happen in younger years. But this particular widow has not only lost her husband, and, and in this uh, first century culture, uh, she has lo- likely lost all of her means of financial support. Uh, her husband was the breadwinner. Uh, they didn't have uh, an annuity. They didn't have Social Security. Uh, she was, like Paul describes in 1 Timothy 5, she was a widow indeed. That is, she w- had to be completely dependent upon the church because she had no children, at least locally, that could take care of her. She comes to this unjust judge. She's her own lawyer. She's her own advocate. She doesn't have her son. She doesn't have a a, a lawyer. She doesn't even have one of those guys that shows up on TV. What do we call them? I hope none of y'all are one of these. You can rebuke me after the service. She doesn't have an ambulance chaser to come to her and say, look, you don't even have to pay me until I get paid. No one to help her. She comes alone to this unjust judge begging uh, for justice. Moreover, her hopelessness has been magnified by not only the state of affairs that she is as a widow who has no husband, has no children to help support her, care for her needs. She's on her own. She's been abused by her adversary. We don't know what he's done. Has he robbed her purse or or has he taken all of her goods? We We don't know what's happened. But she's in desperate need and she keeps going to this judge and saying, Give me justice. I've been wronged. I deserve justice. In a just world, in a sinless world, well, it couldn't be completely sinless or she wouldn't have this enemy. But anyhow, if she was at least in a situation where she had a righteous judge to deal with, she might have hope for getting justice. But this guy's a scoundrel. He's not up for election on November 6th. He doesn't care what you and I think. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care what God thinks. He's a wicked judge. He's not going to give her what she wants because he just doesn't care. He's wicked. He gets his paycheck and he does whatever he wants. This woman is helpless. This woman is hopeless. She's abused. Two times over by by the wicked man that has mistreated her uh, and by the, the hopeless judge that ignores her. What is Jesus doing but impressing upon us, reminding us how helpless and hopeless we are and how this is a, if you will, necessary attribute for God's people always. And it helps them pray. You say, this is an attribute, this is a character trait? Well, think about it. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus says Christians will be characterized as those who are poor in spirit, spiritually poor. 
spiritually bankrupt with their, uh, with their pockets hanging out, no credit cards to fake it with, Compute, completely bankrupt spiritually, utterly dependent upon God. Even if you and I have been a Christian for many, many years, is there now, have we earned just a, a minimal amount of godliness so that on the basis of our own goodness we can go to God and say, give me something? We're still in utter need. The only thing that made us right with God was faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And that hasn't changed. We're still right with God through faith in Christ, through Christ's death on the cross. We never come to a point where we're acceptable to him. We're always utterly dependent upon God. That never changes But in our culture, in our day and age, in our society, we can become forgetful of that, can't we? We're kind of like the people, you might say, on the Jersey Shore or parts of New York. Maybe about the way they looked at you all as Katrina victims. I don't understand God's providence, but right before Katrina, we moved from Baton Rouge to Philadelphia. And then right before we left, right after we left Philadelphia and moved down here, there was Sandy. So I don't know what God is trying to teach me there. Every seven years I need to move. I'm not sure. But can you, can you imagine how maybe the folk that haven't had a hurricane for, say, 50, 60 years, it was back in the 50s, the last time they had a serious one on the, on the northeast, and they're like, you know, why do these people have such a hard time, you know? Katrina, all you hear about is Katrina, 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 you know. And now their lives have been devastated. None of us would hope that on anybody. But as we'll see in the teaching of this passage, God can use even that. The psalmist in Psalm 123 says he cries out to God like a slave to his master. He looks to God till God shall we mercy. The, the slave is utterly dependent upon his master. And then the psalmist reemphasizes it like the maidservant to her mistress, the, the, the gal that takes care of this lady. Uh, she's utterly dependent on her. That's what the psalmist rightly understood about his attitude toward God. I'm utterly dependent upon him. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about a great ordeal that was going on in his life and the rest of the missionary team. He gave us no details, but he tells us that it brought him to utter despair, that he felt like the sentence of death had been written upon his forehead. And then he said this, and this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And you and I might think, well, Paul, you're a pretty spiritual fella. You've been godly for a good while since Damascus Road conversion experience. You've been planting churches. You've been doing a lot of good. And Paul said, yeah, that's true. I've been growing. But my faith still needed to grow. And so God brought him low to the point of despair that Paul might more and more realize his utter dependence upon God. If the Apostle Paul, godly Apostle Paul, godly mature Apostle Paul needed to keep 
coming back to grow in faith, to be more reliant on God, how much more do we? And if we are to grow in prayer and keep persevering, we should not shy away from our desperate situation. We should recognize God's bringing us there. Again, as Ralph Davis, as, as Tim put it on the cover of the bulletin, sometimes the Father may box us in, place us in a situation in which one by one all our secondary helps and supports are taken from us in order that defenseless we may lean on his mercy alone prayer. Once we see this, we will no longer regard prayer as a pious cop-out but as our only rational activity. You and I might get upset with ourselves because we feel like we never pray except when we're in trouble. Well, that shouldn't be the case. But you still better pray when you're in trouble because God has brought you into that trouble to bring you back to Him in prayer. So this widow and her situation reminds us as God's people of our hopelessness and our helplessness and our desperate need of Christ daily. But then we turn to this wicked judge. And not only are we reminded of our helplessness and our hopelessness, we're reminded of the kindness, the kindness, the goodness, the love of our Heavenly Father through this wicked judge. And at this point, you might be thinking, the pastor sort of messed up his outline. How does this wicked judge remind us of the Heavenly Father? If there was ever somebody that was the opposite of our Heavenly Father, surely this wicked judge is. But look at how... Jesus directs us to him. In verse 6, the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God, you see, hear what the wicked judge says, and will not God. How does it work? It works just like Matthew 7. It's what we call in fancy theological preacher type terms a how much more than story. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is saying God is how much more greater than this unjust judge. If this unjust judge gives in to this helpless, hopeless widow, how much more? Will our Heavenly Father do the same? Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, as we read, and you all sang, thanks for doing that, by the way, that was very kind of you. As they sang, if you, being evil, if you ever get offended that your pastor from this pulpit reminds you, who have been in this church for years, that you happen to still be evil in your actions and even your attitudes, and you've been a Christian and an officer of this church for so long, and how dare him do that? Try to remember what Jesus said to his people in Matthew 7. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children that ask. If your kid 
asks for bread, you won't give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, you won't give him a snake. If you're evil and you do that, Jesus isn't denying that you're saved by grace, but he's saying, apart from grace, you're evil. And yet even non-Christians give good gifts to their children. How much more does your heavenly father do that to his children? Wicked, now I'm not talking about you now, wicked pagan people outside the church give good gifts to their children. You know that. They may even make you feel guilty sometimes. We sometimes see ungodly parents, (laughs) and they're better parents than we are. God shames us that way. They're kind to their children. They hate God. They hate the church. They hate the gospel, but they're good to their kids. And Jesus says, how much more is my heavenly father good to you? But still, it it sort of rubs us funny, doesn't it? Why, why, Why couldn't Jesus... Use just a different scenario to motivate us to pray than this rotten scumbag of a judge who doesn't fear God, who doesn't fear men, but he finally gives in to this woman because he says literally she was going to give me a black eye. Literally she was just going to wear me out. She wouldn't shut up. And I finally did what she said. How much will your heavenly father Do the same for you. It just sort of feels a little funny. Why did Jesus do that? I think he's poking us. You know how we sometimes say, I hadn't heard it lately. Uh, we, we, We jab one of our friends with a joke. We say, I'm just picking. I'm just picking at you. I'm just poking fun at you. Or the way we like to say it today is somebody's tweaking you. Jesus does that sometimes to make a point, not just to do it. Jesus isn't a stand-up comet, but he can use humor to get a point across. We're such judgmental folks, aren't we? And Jesus says, why do you, walking around with a two-by-four in your face, in your eye, walk up to your friend that's got a speck in their eye and say, let me help you with that. And of course, you knock them over with a two-by-four. I know in our translation it says log, and you and I think, what is a log? But you see that Jesus is making fun of us for how we, <laughs> you see, he does that. Jesus is saying, how much more then is my father than you wicked people, you wicked fathers, and this wicked judge? But he's also tweaking us a little because he knows how we think sometimes. Brothers and sisters, we're good Presbyterians. We know our catechism. We could probably say it backwards in the original Latin. There was no original Latin. I threw that in for free. But, but you know what I mean. We're good. We're good Presbyterians. But don't we sometimes think, I just think God's out to get me. I think he's just, I think he likes everybody else in church but me. We would never admit it in Sunday school. Or certainly not to the pastor or his wife, because she'll just tell him. But I love being a guest pastor. It's so fun. I get to cause trouble and leave. Of course, you'll never, never call me back. But I get one shot at it. But see, we think that way sometimes. You know why? 
Well, I'm not going to tell you why first. I'm going to give you another illustration. You remember the story of the prodigal son. You remember how the prodigal son story illustrates the love of his father. See, that's a father we want to see. A father that opens his arms and gives his wicked, rebellious son who repents a fattened calf. For me, that's like a triple cheeseburger from Wendy's. Two of them. It is, you know, he gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. It's a wonderful illustration of God's unconditional love for rotten sinners like you and me that come to him in repentance and faith. But what about the older brother who wouldn't come to the party? What does he say to his father? He says, all these years I have slaved over you. And not one time did you let me in my friend's party. He's the son. He's in the house. He's the good boy. But how does he perceive his relationship with his father as a slave to a master? Jesus is tweaking us a little because he says, you look at my father like an unjust judge sometime. Now you admit it. He's not that. He's the exact opposite. But stop thinking that. We need to be reminded that we're helpless and hopeless. We need to be reminded of the kindness of our Father who willingly gives to His people, His elect, His chosen ones, those He set His love on before the foundation of the world. The ones that Paul said in Romans 8, if He's given us His Son, how will He not also along with Him freely give us all things? If he gave us his son who he poured out his wrath upon the cross, isn't everything else easy? But you and I say, but how does that jive with our life? Why the desperate situations? Why the rebellious children? Why the unemployment, not the first time, but maybe the third? Why the cancer? Why to this loved one? And Jesus would teach us also by this parable that desperate times should lead to earnest prayer. Desperate times should lead to earnest prayer. What else could this widow do? She could sit at home and mope, but that's not going to get her justice. She can sit here and rationalize a rotten enemy, Wicked judge, he's not up for election, he's already told me to go jump in a lake in, I'm sure, a very rude way. She could be rational. That ain't going to work. She's got one thing on her side. She can act like the little kid in your car and you've got a thousand miles to go and the child says, when are we going to be there? She can do one, sorry children, I have three kids, they're grown now, but you can tell I haven't gotten over it. She's got one thing on her side. She can harass him. And that's what she does. And Jesus says to us, come and harass my father. There's a wonderful illustration of this. You've been studying the gospel of Mark. I think you've covered this, although I don't remember. If you have already, great. If you haven't yet, don't tell Tim I did this. But you have that picture of the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite, that is, the pagan woman 
Coming to Jesus, Jesus is taking a little break with his disciples. They've gone to somebody's house. They want to just hang out and have a little break. They've been ministering for a long time. And this woman comes, comes storming through the door. Now, that's not unusual in that day and time. Uh, a rich person's house to have the doors open to let the riffraff just kind of come in and go. You know, not into the most intimate part of the house, but, you know, the courtyard, what have you. And she comes in there and she's begging Jesus to heal her daughter. Again, she's not a part of the covenant community. She's a pagan. And and Jesus' disciples in Matthew's account says, Jesus, you want us to throw her out? They're the bouncers. There's 12 of them. And they're like, let us get rid of her. She's making a lot of noise. She's annoying. And by the way, she's a pagan. Jesus ignores that. He doesn't answer. But as this woman keeps begging, Jesus ignores her. She keeps begging and Jesus says, look, you're you're not Jewish. You're not in the covenant community. In fact, you're a dog. Now you can try to rationalize that what Jesus meant was she was a cute little puppy you pat on the head. No, you're a scroungy dog. Okay, Jesus compares this woman to a dog. And I know that sort of messes up our perspective on Jesus. He would never say that. Well, he did. He said to this woman, you're a dog. And then he says, you don't give the food to God's people to dogs. And she said, okay, that's cool. But even at my house, after the kids have eaten, The crumbs fall off the table, and the dogs lick up the crumbs. I'll take the crumbs. Think about this pagan woman outside the covenant community. So often it was the case in the Gospels that the outsiders, the the Roman centurion, and this woman seemed to get it more than the disciples She understood the grace of Jesus. And she says, I don't care if you call me a dog. And I don't care if the disciples threaten to throw me out. I don't care if you ignore me. I'm asking, I'm begging for the crumbs. I'll take the crumbs. And Jesus says, your daughter will be healed. What in the world is going on? Is Jesus being mean? Is he discriminating against pagans? No. He's testing her faith. And just as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 that he despaired to the point of life, uh, to life and death, to death itself, but this happened that he might not rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead, God continues to say to you and I, quit depending on yourself. As Ralph Davis says, God boxes us in. God brings us to utter despair, not because he's mean, not because he's an unjust judge, but because he's a loving father that wants you to grow in faith. And the way you and I grow in faith is we come to despair and we come to him on our knees. And he wants us to keep coming because God's timetable is never our timetable. But he tells you, keep coming, keep coming, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Brothers and sisters, By God's grace, don't lose heart. Come to your heavenly Father through your Savior by the help of his Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this dear church. I thank you for their love, for their Savior. 
But I pray for them as I pray for myself. Father, do not allow us to lose heart, but recognize that you use our desperate moments to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead so that we might keep on asking and seeking and knocking and praying, knowing that you will in your good time Respond in your grace. Father, for those that are wanting to give up this day, seek in your face, build them up in prayer this day for Jesus' sake. Amen.